The rest of us are going to be looking at some themes in First Peter, so if you can turn there in your Bibles, you'll be all set to go. You don't need me to tell you that life is complicated. When you're a little kid, you don't think it's complicated. It's pretty simple, but the older you get, you more, the more you know it, be, it is complicated. Um, ups and downs, all kinds of bad things happen to us in life. Uh, hopefully all kinds of good things too. It's hard to have perspective. It's just complicated to live your life as a human being. Broken world, broken person. We have great fun things that happen, exciting things that happen, and yet all kinds of difficult things happen in our lives. And if you become a Christian, in one sense, it's the same. So here we are as Christians, and our sins are forgiven. We're thankful for that. We're reconciled to God. We're thankful for that. In that sense, everything changes. And yet, life is still hard, and we still have our ups and our downs and conflicts and difficulties and circumstances so many times don't change. They don't change for the better, at least. Sometimes they change for the worse when we become Christians. But what should change for us, what can change, what needs to change, would be our perspective. And the perspective that the gospel brings us uh, on the way we view the ups and the way we view the downs. And First Peter is so very helpful at helping us with our perspective. First Peter picks up a theme from the Old Testament, and that's what is utilized to help us. And that theme would be, we as Christians are strangers and aliens. Okay, We, we don't belong here. To borrow from the Old Testament, like Israel, when they were enslaved, they, when they were uh, taken out of their land, they were strangers and aliens. They were in a place where they didn't belong. Their ultimate citizenship was not there. And so what happens in the New Testament, to help us... We're taught that here on earth, we're strangers and aliens. We, we don't belong here, at least not ultimately. We're just passing through. We're pilgrims. We sang about that this morning on purpose. We're exiles, to use another term. This is not our ultimate homeland. This is not heaven. This is not the new Jerusalem that we're waiting for. And this is so very helpful. In First Peter, the reason it's so helpful in particular is because of suffering. Okay? But it would also be helpful when there isn't suffering, okay, to get us through, to, to, to give us the right perspective on things. And I so wish someone would have taught me this as a brand new Christian. Because so many times you become a Christian, my sins are forgiven, God has, has reconciled me, and I'm made right in Christ, and God has accepted me, and everything's wonderful, and everything's great. True? All that's true. And my life is still filled with all kinds of trouble. And my life is filled with all kinds of problems. Oh, and now it may actually be worse because Jesus said if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Oh, brother. And it's very confusing. And you have all these promises in the Bible, promises about glorification, promises about no suffering, no more tears, and we're busy crying. What we need is a good, helpful teaching through books like 1 Peter to kind of give us perspective on things. And so we're doing that. We started doing it last week, and we'll finish this morning. And the outline would be six things. I know that's not very fancy. In seminary, they say never use things in your outline. It shows laziness. I'm lazy. Six things. Maybe let's call them six vital things. Maybe I'd get a C in seminary. Six things that you need to know as a Christian to survive your exile, to have a right perspective in life. 
Six vital truths. Yeah, we use truth so many times, so things would be good today. Let's quickly review the first three themes from 1 Peter. You can find them there. And then we'll look at the remaining three today. Again, the goal is not to give you a rah-rah speech. The goal is to give you perspective, biblical perspective, that can help you through the ups and through the downs and honor Christ. Okay? Number one, to succeed as a Christian exile, you first need to know that you are a Christian exile. Okay? We have to know that first. Chapter 1, verse 1, elect exiles. Chapter 1, verse 17, that throughout the time of your exile. Chapter 2, verse 11, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles or strangers and aliens. Chapter 1, verse 2 goes into this as well. We have to know that this is not our home and the Bible makes it clear that it is not our home, but a lot of us think that it is our home. It's not. You've got to start there. The reason you don't feel like you belong is because you don't belong. And sometimes when you do feel like you belong, you're in for a rude awakening because you're going to have your best day today, and then tomorrow the bottom's going to drop out. We're all excited because we won last night, right? And next time we'll lose. Well, I don't want to say that. It's to give us perspective to kind of temper things. Not that we disengage, not that we can't have a great time on the good days. But the bad days will always come. And when the bad days come, we have to know that the good days, the best days, are still to come. This isn't heaven. This isn't the eternal kingdom. That's why in chapter 4, verse 12, the, the Apostle Peter says, you shouldn't consider it strange when bad things are happening to you. This isn't the right place. This is an ultimate destination. Again, chapter 4, verse 12. To borrow from the Old Testament, right now, spiritually speaking, you're living in Babylon, not Jerusalem, okay? It was literal in the Old Testament, but the imagery from 1 Peter is, you're living in Babylon. What do you expect? It's not our home. Okay, number two, to succeed as a Christian exile, you need to know that God has solved your biggest problem. Know that God has solved your biggest problem. And throughout 1 Peter, the em- there's a good emphasis on the gospel. What Christ has done. Past tense. Your biggest problem is God and your rebellion against Him, whether you know it or not. And that problem has been solved if you're trusting in Jesus. And so we saw last time, chapter 1, verse 3, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's something that's already happened. Verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. That's in the here and now. But then he goes on to say in verse 9, the salvation of your souls. This morning at the end of the service, we're going to celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper. We take bread, we take wine, we eat and drink out of obedience to Jesus who said, do this, eat and drink in remembrance of me. Okay, this is the night when he was betrayed. He's going to go to Calvary to accomplish perfect, lasting, secure, sure redemption. Your biggest problem is not what's going to happen tomorrow. Your biggest problem is not the bad news you hear. Your biggest problem isn't any of those things, though they may be big problems. First Peter doesn't say, suffering? Ah, there's no such thing. First Peter talks about real suffering. 
The Bible's not downplaying the reality of the suffering, but it's upplaying the reality of the best thing, the most important thing. And that's to keep perspective. Oh, that's right. Doesn't mean we don't cry. Doesn't mean we don't grieve. Those are biblical things, realities, even encouraged at times. Doesn't mean we don't cry out to God in desperation, asking for help. It's not saying those things are, are, are fiction. But our biggest problem should help put things in perspective in that it's been solved. Our biggest problem is a spiritual problem. And the emphasis in First Peter that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Your biggest problem is solved. Done. It's over. So very, very helpful. A lot of different things are thought about communion, but it is so helpful. There's not much to it. It's in remembrance of Jesus. What did he do? Christ died for our sins. He was raised for our justification. He was. He did. It's done. It's all him. It's all him. So again, as you have an awesome day tomorrow, and I hope you do, there's something better than your awesome day. Because the next day it might be the most rotten day. And if you have the most rotten day tomorrow, again, let it be informed with the right perspective. Biggest problem solved. It's good, huh? You're like, well, tell us something we don't know. Well, remember, even Peter in First Peter and Second Peter says, I want to remind you of these things. Because I'll be the first one to, to, to admit, I'm going to remember them right now. Duh, it's my job, you know. <laughs> but then, as soon as I'm distracted, I forget. It's no wonder we celebrate the Lord's Supper until He comes. Oh, that's right. It's not about what I do. Oh, that's right, it's done. I had a good conversation yesterday with a family member about uh, whether or not you should walk forward for communion or be served communion and, you know, the Bible doesn't say. And, but there's a whole history behind those kinds of things. Why certain churches do it certain ways. There's a priest up front and you have to go to the priest who makes atonement for your sins. So you come, front, come up because the priest does that. And it was just it was a civil, good conversation. And, and a family member said, well, I kind of like it when you go forward because it makes me feel like I'm contributing and I'm doing something. And I thought, isn't that interesting? That's kind of how all of our default mode is. I kind of like it if I could sit there and be served because I'd do nothing. As Jesus did everything, isn't it nice to have deacons who are called servants, servants in the church, servants of Christ who serve us, and we sit there and we do nothing because he did everything I wouldn't want to cause a church split over that because the Bible doesn't mandate a certain way but there's history behind it behind it it's fascinating Jesus said on the cross it is finished it was all him so you can rest in that sure sure
Let's move on. Lest this be a three-parter and Jesus doesn't come back next week. (laughs) Number three, to succeed as a Christian exile, you need to know that salvation will be fully experienced in the future. Salvation will be fully experienced in the future. So much in First Peter is about this. I don't want to take the time to reread everything and redo everything. But how about chapter 1, verse 4, quickly, talking about our salvation. It ends in verse 4, kept in heaven for you. It's not here now. Ultimate salvation isn't here now. Kept in heaven for you. But it's looking forward to something. Verse 5, being guarded through faith for salvation. How about this? Ready to be revealed. Not revealed now, but ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 6, now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So it's not in the now. It's in the future. In the future that it's talking about at the end of verse 7, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. How about going on in verse 8? You do not see him. That's now we don't see him. How about verse 13? Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will, will, notice, will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, verse 13. When his glory is revealed. And it goes on. Chapter 5 is filled with it. But again, I don't want to redo all of that. What First Peter does so masterfully is it teaches us Christ's work is done. It's personal. It's real. As sure as the tomb is empty, it's done. And it's for you now to believe in, to trust in, to have a living hope, confidence in Him. It's not hope in hope. It's hope in Christ. But to know that you don't enter into, that you don't experience in its fullness that great salvation until He returns. Boy, I wish somebody would have taught me this. Because the Bible speaks as if these things are ours. Because they are. And why does my body hurt? Why do they want to cut more things off? More scars. And you go into the doctor for the checkup, I'm like, what about, they say, keep an eye on everything, you know, and I'm like, what about this, 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 and this, and this? Well, that's whatever in Latin, wherever it came from, that just means you're getting old. Oh, okay. Drats, I was feeling pretty good. You get the idea. But these realities of resurrection, new life, new bodies, no more suffering, no more pain, no more, su- no more persecution, no more conflicts. They are realities based upon a past action of Jesus, but we don't enter into them. We don't experience them fully until he returns and he makes all wrong things right. It'd be helpful too to match First Peter with Second Peter, but that would take way too long. But Second Peter talks about his return. Judgment for those who aren't trusting in Christ. Salvation in its fullness for those who are. That's why sometimes when Bible teachers try to, try to piece this together and they try to come up with a shorthand way, way of describing it for those who are kind of in the know so we can not have to re-explain it every time, they talk about salvation being already, but not yet. Super helpful. Super helpful. 
As a matter of fact, sometimes the Bible says you have been saved. Sometimes it says you're being saved. And sometimes it says you will be saved. So it's for good reason that you have the already and the not yet. If you don't have the already, it's work salvation based upon something you do. No, it's the already salvation based upon what Jesus did. But if you don't have the not yet category, you're living in fantasy land. I am healthy, I am healthy, I am healthy. I don't have age spots, I don't have age spots, I don't have age spots. Right? I'm not sick, I'm not sick, I'm not sick. Christian science, by the way, and it's extreme, it would be an extreme example. Charismatic movement would be another example. The not yet category that's tied to the return of Christ is in the already category, and we just lie to ourselves and lie to other people. Oh, you will be healed. In fact, the Bible can even speak of it in the past tense. But it's got to be in the not yet category. Read First Peter. So I so badly want to help you with these things. Or life is very confusing. Christianity is very confusing. But if you read First Peter and see that it's all tied to the work of Jesus and his return, it's not confusing. It's wonderful. We should move on. Number four. We're on number four, right? Number four. To succeed as a Christian exile, you need to know that the here and now matters. Okay? The here and now matters because you might only hear what we've emphasized so far and you say, you know what? Oh, and I read Second Peter and the world is going to hell in a handbasket and so you know what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter so I'm going to live however I want to live or it doesn't matter I'm going to go hide in retreat. It doesn't matter so I'm, not, I'm going to be totally passive in life. Let go and let God, some form of that. But what we have in First Peter, rather wonderfully would be a huge, long list of commands. Do this. Don't do that. Stop. Start. Get busy. Zealous. Active. Not to earn salvation, but because Christ has earned salvation for you. He has caused you to be born again, so now you're alive spiritually. You're not dead, so live like it. And so, when you read First Peter, keep both of those things in mind. In one sense, I think it's kind of a good temptation, right? It's, it's good that it comes up. Because we understand Christ has done everything, and this is not the new Jerusalem. This is the old Babylon, spiritually speaking. And so, I shouldn't have these huge expectations, and I should just be able to say, I'm waiting for that day to come when He returns in His glory Let's not prepare for the future. You know, no wonder people have had this problem. It's so good that, no, 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 no. Be busy acting like Christians. So let's, let's look at at least a, a flavoring of it. Great emphasis in the book. How about chapter 1, verse 13? We read it earlier for scripture reading in verse 13. Therefore, see, it's tied to what he has done. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. Notice it starts with the mind. Don't complain that you just learned a lot of stuff. We, we didn't do anything. 
Well, it starts with learning a lot of stuff, right? Prepare your minds for action. You've got to understand this first, and then you're going to live a certain way. And keep reading with me, if you would, being sober-minded. Let your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So in light of his return, we're going to act a certain way. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Live a certain way. Live the way God wants you to live now that you can. Now that it's not for salvation because you could never do that. But now that God has done this for you, live differently. That's holy. Live like a human being who's not fallen. Live differently. God is different. He's not like all the other gods. And now you belong to Him. Live for His honor. Live for His glory. Live in light of the gospel because of the gospel. Not live the gospel. Be holy. Be different. Just remember that every human religion says, be holy and you can be even if not perfectly and God will accept you. I mean, any kind of, kind of theistic religion. Christianity is, no, he's caused you to be born again. Yes, you're supposed to live holy, and you don't. Christ did for you. You rest in him. You trust in him. But now, be holy. Live differently. Because you can. Now you can. How about verse 22? Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Where do our souls get purified? Well, because of the gospel. Uh, the truth in First Peter would be in reference to the work of Jesus. And we've, we've trusted in him, in that sense, obedience to the truth. We've obeyed the command to believe for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That didn't happen before. But in light of the gospel, now there's fruit. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, a heart that's been transformed, a heart that's new, a heart that's been changed, a born-again heart. Verse 23, since you have been born again, see? Not in order to be born again, human religion, but since you have been born again because of what he's done, now do, do things differently. Stop being a jerk. Right? Because that's who we are by nature. But you're not enslaved to that anymore. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, that's the work of Jesus, through the living and abiding word of God. That's awesome. There are new expectations. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants. See, notice it's because of this newbornness. Long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And if you're a Christian, you have tasted that the Lord is good. So there's a longing. There's a thirsting. Even to do the right thing. What would honor the Lord here? Chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, let go and let God do nothing. The world's going to perish anyway. No, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. 
those, those sinful desires that you, you used to be enslaved to, which wage war against your soul. How about verse 12? Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, the godless, honorable. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. How about verse 15? It says, doing good. Verse 17, honor everyone. That, that's a good inclusive one. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Chapter 2, verse 18, we have instruction to servants. Chapter 3, verse 1, instruction to wives. Chapter 3, verse 7, instruction to husbands. And then how about chapter 3, verse 9? Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for this, bless for to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. Chapter 2, verse 22, tells us now Jesus is our example. He didn't give people what they deserved. Sorry to go so fast. But to get the flavor for the whole, now live differently. The here and now matters. It is wonderful, I don't want to use anyone as an example, I was tempted for a second. It is wonderful that we don't have to expect perfection from one another to accept one another. And so I could name any of you and say something about your sins, if I know you well enough, because you have them. And you could say things about my sins because I have them. Okay? And it is wonderful to know that that's why we're resting in Jesus for what he's done. And yet, nevertheless, we are called to do the right thing. Even to those who do the wrong thing to us. And we can in Christ. The here and now really does matter. I love it that in chapter 2, verse 21, Jesus is our example. But I love it that he's first and foremost Savior. It's a false choice. I give you that false choice a lot, and I'm sorry for that. I overreact. We so emphasize example that somehow salvation is by following Jesus. Then we're all going to hell. Because none of us follow Jesus faithfully. Okay? Okay? We need him as a substitute savior doing it for us. Now we can all go to heaven if we trust in him. But he is called to be our example if we belong to him by faith. And we are called to live different ways. So is Jesus our example or not? False choice, right? First and foremost, savior. Well, you can even look at it another way now that I'm off track. How about this? Jesus is our example. He did everything perfectly. Have fun with that. Right? So he's our example in that sense to show us our need for him to be our savior. So example condemned all of us. Substitute savior, salvation for us if we trust in him. And now our example. Because we have his spirit in us. The Holy Spirit of promise. But the here and now really does matter. We should be so heavenly minded that we are of earthly good, might be how we would put it.
Let's move on. Number five. To succeed as a Christian exile, now that we know that we are, number five, know that the gospel is the church's message. Know that the gospel is the church's message. And we'll look at this in chapter two. But actually we see it in chapter one and two and three. This is not, I, I'll just let you know, this is not fully developed in First Peter. It's more of an assumed. But in First Peter, what you have is, when he talks about preaching, he's talking about the gospel, the good news, okay? So he, he relates those two concepts together. So if you read the whole book and you try to see, okay, where is gospel? Uh, wh- where, wh- what does that theme look like? Well, it's good news that is preached. And he calls us to, to, to do that very thing. That's the expectation for us as believers. Our message to the watching, dying, godless world is the good news regarding Jesus. Okay? This is important because here we are, strangers and aliens. We don't like this place. We don't like its morality. We don't like its, you name it. So what are we going to tell them? What's, what's Omaha Bible Church's message going to be to all of these bad people? who do bad things. Our message is going to be the gospel. What we're going to preach, according to 1 Peter, is good news. Okay? So one example would be in chapter 2, verse 9. Chapter 2, verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Notice what we do, our role in this Babylon. That you may proclaim. That's preaching. Okay, that you may proclaim, what are we going to proclaim? The excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Not fully developed, but when we start looking at the rest of the statements about preaching, uh, chapter 1, verse 25, this word is the good news. You proclaim a word and you proclaim good news that was preached to you. Chapter 1, verse 12, who preached the good news to you by his Holy Spirit. So I'm going to go back to chapter 1 and I read it that way. That you may proclaim. What are we doing here when we don't belong in this foreign spiritual land? We proclaim. What do we proclaim? The excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous, marvelous light. In the greater context of First Peter, that's, that's gospel preaching. Then he says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you had re- received mercy. We're engaging all sorts of people who have not received mercy, who are not God's people. They're spiritual Gentiles. We have to remember that that's who we were. We weren't a people. We hadn't experienced God's mercy. So what do we do? We do. We proclaim the excellencies of Him, the one who takes people who aren't His people and He makes them His people. The one who hasn't received mercy and they receive mercy from Him. We have to remember that. Because we live in a world with all kinds of things we don't like, all kinds of things that don't align with biblical morality, all kinds of things that evidence unjust activity, all kinds of things that we don't like that remind us this is not the new Jerusalem. So what are we going to tell all these people? 
We'd better not start with saying, you've got to have biblical morality. And if you just do it hard enough and well enough and faithful enough, God will accept you. Unless we're going to tell them that first so that they can see that they can't do it and then we're going to tell them about Jesus. But hopefully you get my point. We proclaim good news because that's what we received. We didn't get what we deserved. It's important that we know that. It's important that we remember that. First Peter chapter 3, verse 15, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. That's a good complementary text to chapter 1, verse 12, to chapter 1, verse 25, to chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. See, what's interesting in First Peter, just wake up for a second if you need to, um, if you... Just remember in First Peter, it's do these things, you Christians who have been born again. But so many times I forget that when I'm going to proclaim my message to people who are godless. I just say, do these things. Arr. I do need to remember they have no power to do these things. And I'm approaching them if I don't tell them where the power comes from the exact opposite way the Bible does. This is so helpful for Pat. Maybe it's not helpful for you because maybe you're way ahead of me in sanctification. Some of you are, no doubt doesn't take a lot. <laughs> but, you know, every morning, to a fault, you know, one of the first things I do is, you know, I go get my, unplug my phone and scroll over and I see, you know, what are the top five headlines? And it's, it's usually not great. And right now, it's usually about somebody saying some outlandishly, outlandish thing. And I'm supposed to vote for one of them. Or other things, but let's not ignore the obvious. I mean, it's as if this is not heaven. It's a great reminder that I'm a stranger and an alien. And I do want to be like the Apostle Paul and like Peter, but in the Apostle Paul's words, to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Got to remember that. This is not the New Jerusalem. There have been people who came here on boats who once called it that. How'd that work out, by the way? It didn't work out. I don't blame them for coming here. I don't blame them for wanting to have freedom. It's awesome. This is in heaven. If you think this is heaven, you've set your sights way too low. We have a message. And our message is not do more, try harder, and get in line. 
It's good news regarding Jesus. Okay, finally, number six. To survive as an alien and as a stranger, to have perspective, know that God is sovereign over the here and now. Know that God is sovereign over the here and now. It's not hugely developed in 1 Peter, but we at least get a taste of it. And it's for sure there. So think, here I am, think in the Old Testament, and I'm estranged, I'm not where I want to be, there's conflict, there's difficulty, you can think about Daniel, you can think about others, it's certainly uh, amidst paganism, uh, against all kinds of things that would be contrary to their uh, Judeo-yet-to-be-Christian values, God is sovereign, God is king, God is in charge, God has all the power. What's happening isn't just because of bad luck. It's interesting, in 1 Peter chapter 1, you have something about God's sovereignty when it comes to even when Jesus would come here and when he would suffer, talked about before he did. See, God is sovereign. God has a plan. Before Jesus came, there was a plan for him to come. And not only was there a plan for him to come, there was a plan for him to come as a substitute and suffer and die and be raised from the dead. We won't take the time to go into all of that, but chapter 1, verses 11 and 12 would have us to know that. Sovereignty. And it comes up in other places too. How about looking with me at chapter 2, verse 13? 2.13. Be subject. These are these strangers and aliens, believers who have experienced the grace of God. Be subject, he says to them to us by application, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. Notice there's no little footnote, no marginal thing. Every human institution that's following and adhering to Christian morals and principles. Every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, ungodly emperor, To the emperor as supreme or to governors as, here we go, sovereignty, sent by him. Wow. Emperors and governors who would make the affairs of contemporary leaders, and I mean that figuratively and literally, look like the actions of patron saints? Sent by Him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. There's there's still some, even though it's corrupt and filled with malice, some some justice involved. How about the end in in verse 17? Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. Honor the emperor. In my margin I wrote, What? Question mark, exclamation point, question mark, exclamation point. What? How could we honor a pagan emperor if we're them? Because we believe in the sovereignty of God. And we believe that God even takes sinful people, men and women, and uses them to accomplish His greater purposes. The greater purpose that started even way back when with a plan to send Jesus... 
a greater purpose that ends with, according to Romans chapter 8, or according to 1 Peter, glorification. God has a plan, and His plan is unfolding. That's how we can do that. This is is mind-rocking. This is perspective-changing. Honor the emperor. It's no wonder, to use Daniel again, Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, God changes times and seasons. How about this? He removes kings and sets up kings. God is sovereign. God is in charge. No, No such thing as bad luck. Again, that doesn't mean you're not responsible to do what you can do. That could be a whole other series. But Christians do rest in the sovereignty of God. History is unfolding. So, true or false, the next president of the United States will be God's president for the United States. You see why I do that to be a, for a little bit of comic relief. On a certain level, we could say no, right? We're not called to call bad good and good bad. That wouldn't be good or right. But in another sense, history is unfolding and it's headed somewhere. And ultimately, it's to the return of Jesus. And by the way, if we had God's man or woman perfectly as our next candidate, we wouldn't need Jesus to come back and we wouldn't be longing for it. We believe in the sovereignty of God. History is going somewhere. God is in charge. God is good. God is for His people. Interesting, huh? I just want to pray that I don't flick over on my iPhone tomorrow morning and look at the headlines. That's first thing. Or maybe when I do, I remember God is sovereign, Daniel chapter 2. Okay. We could do a whole other series on the call to love your neighbor, the call to act, the call to exercise your freedoms. We could do all of those things. We're not going to do it enough for now. But when awesome things happen, don't forget the sovereignty of God. When terrible things happen, don't forget the sovereignty of God. It doesn't mean you're cold and insensitive and mean-spirited and you don't care about people. But don't forget the sovereignty of God, right? And so we can face anything and everything as sojourners and strangers because our God is holy, He's different, and He's in charge. And in the end, we win, right? People joke about the book of Revelation and they think, I can't figure it out, right? Should I be amillennial, premillennial, postmillennial, and what about the rapture, and what about the timing and all these things? And Sometimes people just joke and say, the theme of the book of Revelation, I know, and it cuts across across all of those boundaries, Jesus wins. Okay? It's going to end that way, for sure. Not that those issues aren't important, but it is going to end that way, for sure. Someone said, I'm pan-millennial. It all pans out in the end. (laughs) Might be a cop-out, but you, what unites all Christians from all the persuasions would be, Glory is sure. It's as sure as the resurrection in the past. 
It's tied to the return in the future, and it includes everyone who believes. Okay? Don't forget that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the fact that the new Jerusalem won't be tainted by corruption, injustice, anything wrong, and that we can enjoy it, that it will last for eternity, and that we can enjoy it because of what Jesus has done. Help us as we try to navigate the difficult waters of living in the here and now in light of the past and the future. Help us to be faithful uh, by the power of the Spirit. Help us even now as we eat and drink in remembrance of Jesus uh, that we would indeed find our rest in Him and that that rest would translate into a zealous, active behavior for the glory of Christ in the here and now. In Jesus' name, amen.